the only reason I came back to this crap house was to find out who did it. And I'm not leaving till I do. Michael Caine is Carter, a man with unbridled hate. Do you want to be dead, Albert? For Christ's sake! You knew what I'd do, didn't you, Albert? Listen, Christ, I didn't kill him! I know he did When a professional killer hates, he turns animal. And there becomes but one law in the underworld jungle. Get Carter. Get Carter. Before Carter gets you. You are listening to Grim Up North podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. I'm Adrian Scott. And I'm Matt Carr. Today, we're going to be talking about a very dark North. The scary world of Northern Noir. Murder, crime, greed, lust, depravity, police corruption, bad men, bad women. We've got it all covered here. We totally have. Or rather, northern writers have it covered. And filmmakers and TV Mm. dramatists. And they've covered it a lot. And much of what they've covered can be traced back to one particular film. Yep. A film which remains one of the seminal British gangster films, I think. Totally. Get Carter. Get Carter. But before we talk about the film, let's get back to basics. What is noir, Matt? Well, you said get back to basics, so I guess the best way to start would be looking at the dictionary definitions and working outwards. Okay. So the Cambridge Dictionary describes noir as a word, quote, used for describing films or books that show the world as being unpleasant, strange or cruel. Right. So that's kind of quite a general depiction that you could apply to things like horror films and and conventional literary fiction. Yeah, you could. So Merriam-Webster narrows it down a bit more. They say that noir refers to crime fiction featuring hard-boiled, cynical characters and bleak, sleazy settings. Hard-boiled, cynical characters. Yeah. So there's something, yeah, about the way the characters are presented. Yeah, you could say that would be Yes Minister, though, couldn't you? Well... (laughs) Almost. But uh, but so, so, um, anyway, I digress. So the the term film noir was first used by French film critics in 1955 to describe a particular genre of Hollywood films of the 40s and 50s. Right. They could be gangster films. Right. Or private eye films or police procedurals. Or they could be... They'd always dark. um, And, in fact, they are actually quite often draped in shadow and, and yeah. film well they're black and white for a start for the most part they're draped in shadow they draw on kind of expressionist lighting german expressionist lighting yeah. from the films of the 30s but the it's not they're not only cop films they could right. also be kind of crime melodramas like the postman always rings twice mm-hmm. or double indemnity right yeah. they were films with morally ambiguous protagonists or protagonists with no morality at all Amoral. the gangsters might be heroes the private eyes and police might use dubious methods to get results. Right, okay. There was often no moral difference between the cops and robbers. So this is the world of noir. Ambiguous, amoral, dark, underworld. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. 
Well, and that makes me think of the shadow. The shadow. Young, uh, described that as the part of ourselves we don't want to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and the collective shadow was the part of our collective world we don't want to look at. He said, the shadow is a moral problem that challenges the whole ego personality, the conscious part of us. For no one can become conscious of the shadow without considerable moral effort. That's so, an, yeah, go on. I, there's something interesting there that, that I don't think noir is just gratuitous. I think it's trying to present the underworld to us. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, put it this way, it can be gratuitous. You know, well, yeah, of course. But, but yes, I think your, real, your kind of serious noirish writers are kind of showing us a picture of ourselves that yes. we don't like to see or recognise, and yet we're fascinated by. Exactly. And and I think there's there's this sort of presentation in an in, in a sort of enhanced way of things that we all feel at different points in our lives that scare us i think yeah well i think that's right and especially when you look at these kind of small town um noirish things like the postman always rings twice when you've mm. got some quite ordinary characters who basically their emotions tip them over the edge until they find themselves entering this world of murder and blackmail and god knows what yeah, else yeah, exactly so a lot of noirish films and books will explore that thin line between conventional morality and what we think of as the underworld or the underground yeah you know and, and what young characterized as as that part of us that we do not want to look at yeah or that we we shove things into because we don't know how to deal with them absolutely and, absolutely and, and he said it takes moral effort to look at it and the moral effort is often made by those writers because yeah, they're prepared so. to go where we will descend into the sewers, if yeah. you like. You know, and the worlds they depict are often harsh, brutal, and mm. always violent. They often had certain stock characters. You might find femme fatales, hard yeah. bo- hard-boiled private detectives. Yeah. The plots often came from American detective and crime fiction in the first instance. Raymond Chandler, Jim yes. Thompson, James M. Cain, yeah, yeah. Mickey Spillane. And that first-person narrative, that, that sort of talking... Uh, to the reader. That's right, because that's the that's the um, the noirish writer takes you to yes. these places where you would never normally want to go. And if you actually physically found yourself in those places, you probably it's... want a police escort, <laughs> or you want a way out very quickly. You want to get out pretty quick. So I guess the question is, but what... also maybe into the mind, because a lot of these these stories go into the either the mind of the detectives or the hero or the antihero, or worse. The killers. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when we move towards the discussion of Get Carter, that's where we're going, really. Because the thing is, this template, this noirish template, has been played out again and again. Scandi noir in French films, in um, um, American films, it's still still there, it's always there. It always exercises that fascination. Uh, And we're obsessed with it. I mean, you've only got to look at the the television uh, schedules for how many of these programs are about murder, police, dark Shetland, you know, all these places, these dark... And that's another thing I think about noir. Uh, it's not just the characters, it's the places. It is the places. Uh, I mean, a lot of crime fiction is fixed in a very particular place. I mean, going back to what you just said, I mean, I think crime fiction also answers questions that we ask ourselves when we read about horrific events in the news. Yeah. You know, because um, quite often you'll be presented with these horrendous yeah. everyday events that yes. take place all the time yeah. and there's no clear explanation for why these people people will say how could someone do yeah, something exactly. like that there's, you know? al- there's always that sense that they, this is not fair 
That's right. Yeah, it's, it's not fair. It's also inexplicable exactly. in the world that we live in. Yeah. So therefore, we want these writers. A part of us wants them to do, do what they do. Yeah, to go there and enter the mind because we're frightened by yeah, this kind yes. of thing. Of course, we're frightened of the possibility of stranger danger and so on. Absolutely. Um, of uncontrolled passions that can wreck an entire life. Yeah. So when writers go into that world, and the thing is, in the subject matter we're discussing today, these are this is a northern world, a very specifically northern world. Well, yeah. That was really. Invented, if you like, by the film Get Carter. So you think that's where it really started? It, I guess it started with the novel Jack's Return Home, right? Which was written by a Humberside writer called okay. Ted Lewis. Ted Lewis was an interesting guy. He was, yeah. um, he was, um, he grew up in a small in Barton upon Humber, and he was um, an artist, a jazz right. piano player, oh. and he wrote very hard thrillers. Wow. And, you know, people think that Get Carter is a tough film. The novel is worse. That's it. Yeah, because the character is worse. Oh, God. And Michael Caine actually gives him a certain humanity <laughs> that he doesn't have in the novel. But um, that's, that's he was, Lewis was fascinated by this Raymond Chandler-esque world, right. the noirish world, the hard-boiled detective world. Well, so he was from Barton on Humber. That's the thing. It hadn't been done in Barton and Humber or in the North before. If right. you think of the kind of, if you think of the kind of um, films and books that stand out about the North, before Get Carter, okay. which was made, it came out in 1971. You've got things like um, Billy Liar, Room at the Top, A Taste of Honey. Which presents something dark. It's dark, but there's always a lot of redemption in those novels, yes. isn't there? There's yeah. ways out for a start. Yes. There's, you know, Even if it means leaving. People leave. That's quite often the thing, you leave. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and there's also a lot of life. There's a lot of vibrant life. And there are mm. kind of people you can recognise as being people like the quite, people you yeah. know, you know, in Saturday night and Sunday morning. Even in Kez which is a pretty grim portrayal of the North. <laughs> yeah. But Get Carter was different. Yeah, yeah. Because Get yeah. Carter, there is no redemption. No. There are no, no good people isn't. in it. And nope. the lead character is a psychopath. Yeah. Who you end up rooting for because the people he Weirdly. kills are worse than he is. Worse. <laughs> um, so you've got that. Mm. And you, but you've got it in this very specific um, northern industrial setting. I mean, take one of the opening lines. You'll, you'll relate to this. Yes. By Ted Lewis Go describing... On. How um, Carter arrives at Doncaster Station, where he changes <laughs> trains to go to Scunthorpe, oh, which, my is God. Where the, which is where the um, the novel is set. S Scunthorpe. Yeah, Scunthorpe. Yeah, the film wow. isn't, but the novel is. So he no, says, Doncaster Station, gloomy, wide, windy areas of rails and platforms, overhung with concrete and faint neon, rain noiselessly, emphasizing, emphasizing the emptiness. Oh, so God. it's terse. Bleak prose, isn't it, really? I and spent even... a lot of time on Doncaster Station when I was, was a it kid, like that? train spotted. Well, when it was wet, yes. You never saw anybody standing there in a black Macintosh, did you, <laughs> waiting to train there were, a lot of, there were a lot of people in black Macintoshes. Yeah, those northern stations in the rain, in the dark, they are pretty bleak places. Well, he, take, he goes even further, this wonderful passage um, in which he describes um, arriving in Scunthorpe. So here it is. Great. At first there's just the blackness, the rocking of the train, the reflections and the blackness. But if you keep looking beyond the reflections, you eventually notice the glow creeping into the sky. At first it's slight and you think maybe a haystack or a petrol tanker or something is on fire, somewhere over a hill and out of sight. But then you notice that the clouds themselves are reflecting the glow and you know that it must be something bigger. And a little later the train passes through a cutting and curves away towards the town. A small, bright, concentrated area of light and beyond and around the town you can see the causes of the glow. The half dozen steelworks stretching to the rim of the semicircular bowl of hills. 
flames shooting upwards, soft red pulsing on the insides of melting shops, white heat sparking in blast furnaces, the structures of the works black against the collective glow, all of it looking like a Disney version of the dawn of creation. What a nice piece of writing. It's rather beautiful, isn't it? It is. And yeah. uh, it's the kind of description of the North that you would expect to find in many novels of the period. Yeah. But the thing is, it's with this novel, all it's all, yeah, the, in, it, true, in like Wigan Pier, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's true, actually. But the th interesting thing is what Lewis was trying to do. Bearing in mind, when he wrote this book, he was also doing the artwork for Yellow Submarine. <laughs> really? Yeah, a man of many, many science, many Lewis. Yeah. And um, so while he was doing this some um, happy artwork for <laughs> Yellow Submarine, he was also telling this unbelievably brutal story, story. of a man who is an enforcer, Jack Carter, mm -hmm. an enforcer for a London gang who goes up to the north of England to investigate the death of his brother. He yeah. finds out he's been murdered. He also finds out that his brother and his niece, Dorian, were connected to a gang, a Newcastle gang, making paedophile porno yeah. movies. And um, he kills them all, essentially. Yes. He kills yeah. them all, and he beats his way across the city, torturing people who get in his way, including yeah. women. Yeah. He has sex. He has phone sex. He is, gives one woman a fatal overdose. Yeah. He's just not your ideal heroic protagonist. He's not. I haven't all. watched this film for years. In fact, I don't know whether I ever watched it when it came out. But when we started talking about doing this, I went and watched it, and I was shocked at how dark it is. Many people were at the time. For, for that time? Yeah. It caught, you know, some people say they put that film as a kind of transitional film, moving out of a kind of um, cheerier, more optimistic yeah, view of yeah. the 60s into... It certainly into introduces ...crisis-ridden England of the 1970s. But uh, Mike, Mike the, the actual film is different from the novel for well, it's, various it's ways. Well, it's not set in Scunthorpe, is it? It's not set in Scunthorpe. And that's crucial to the film, probably crucial to the success of the film. Mm. I don't, Nothing against Scunthorpe. I just find it <laughs> difficult to imagine that this film set in Scunthorpe would have had the same um, influence and power that it did have. So um, the film was directed by Mike Hodges. Right. Uh, Mike Hodges had... Um, he was a director who'd done... Um, he'd served... He was a filmmaker who'd done th thrillers for the TV. Right. And he had also done his national service in the Royal Navy uh -huh. in the 1950s. Right. Where he visited various ports on the East Coast, uh. which he described as Hogarthian hellholes <laughs> filled with Dickensian poverty. Here we go, back to the north. So he was sent the script um, by the producer, Michael Klinger. And the producer, Michael Klinger, was a, a man who had connections with various Soho right. underworld figures. Oh, really? And he wanted to capitalise on the interest that had been generated by the Cray Brothers trial. So he wanted to do a gangster film ah. that linked that. And that's one of the things, that, that's one of the themes in the film, the, the link infamous. between the South and the North. Yeah. The criminal. Yeah. So he sent this script to Mike Hodges, and Hodges said, later said, he said, the book arrived in the post out of the blue, along with an offer to write and direct it. Its literary style was as enigmatic as the manner of its arrival. While set in England and written by an Englishman, it was, aside from the rain, atypically English. Mm. So when he went looking for locations... Atypically English. Well, you can see that in a way, really. It's that kind of terse, hard style, which is something right. you associate more with your kind of typical American. I suppose so. It's a kind of Mickey Spillane-ish, James M. Cain oh, style, yeah, stripped yeah. of artifice and yeah, so on. Yeah. So um, Hodges went looking for locations, and he went to Tyneside because of his background right. in the Navy. And right. um, he, he liked the idea of Ted Lewis, the writer. He said he liked the idea of him stamping heavily 
on those rose-coloured spectacles used <laughs> to survey this green and pleasant land. <laughs> well, so he does that. He really does do that. And, you know, the, the, the locations turned out, the choice of Newcastle turned out to be crucial because... Um, when people look at that film, they don't just see a gangster film. Now no. they see it as a historical record of mm. a post-industrial city, an industrial city that was still a working industrial city, and yet you could see this kind of um, '60s modernism poking through. Mm. There's the Trinity car park where the um, oh, yeah. sleazy entrepreneur Cliff, Cliff Brumby gets thrown off. Yes, That's, yeah, which um, is sort of yeah brutalist, isn't it? That actually became a kind of heritage monument because oh, of Get Carter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, to the point when they demolished it a few years ago. Um, the, the car park was built under the auspices of T. Dan Smith, right. who was the head of council in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. The visionary, the visionary yeah. ex-Trotskyist, well, actually, he said he was a Trotskyist his entire life, right. who wanted to turn Tyneside into the Brasilia of the North. <laughs> and he eventually went down for corruption because of well. various deals he had with the architect Poulsen. And right. he crops up in the um, our friends from the north. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all that darkness, yeah, all that that stuff that's under the surface. Yeah, we we mentioned at the beginning of corruption, police corruption. All this idea of corruption is part of noir. It seems to me. That's right. That's it's right. Naming things that other people won't name. Well, totally. And and you know you see that in the um the whole way the film begins. You have this haunting soundtrack yeah. with that amazing bass line, Roy Budd's bass line. It yeah. instantly grips you, and then you see the train kind of trundling northwards through, through um, this recognisably industrialised landscape, power stations, power lines. That's right. You see Michael Caine um, tailored yeah. up to the hilt. Yeah, he looks smart. In fact, he is through the whole film. No matter yeah. how many people he kills, yes. he's never... His tie is always he's, in place, he's, he's and his suit is always immaculate. Yeah. So he's there doing substance abuse on the train, yeah, yeah. and you think, why is he doing that? Why is he putting that stuff up his nose? What is that? Yeah. And then you think, why is he taking those pills? Um, no explanation. At one point, you see him looking wistfully at a child. Yes. And this is the thing about the film. It gives Jack a bit of humanity yeah. that the original character didn't have. But I suppose if you're going to put someone on a screen, it, it, it's almost impossible to make someone completely inhuman. Unless you're entering the world of complete yeah, of horror, horror films and so on. And that's the thing is, noir doesn't necessarily no. go that way, really. No. I think it's because the character, because you, the people you see in noirish films are recognisably human. Yes. That's part of their fascination. And in that opening sequence, there's the, just the brilliance of going up through these tunnels. Absolutely. This liminal journey. Transitional stages. On. Yeah. And also, like, there's about three people serving either breakfast or, or lunch very different to the trains these days and and there's this sense of the complete ordinary yeah this is an ordinary journey and yet underneath the surface there's something really dark going on. and he drops hints straight off yeah i mean for, he's reading um farewell my lovely yes. the raymond chandler yes. novel you know and um although he doesn't seem to get very far with it no because you see him at the beginning of that sequence right. he's only seemed to have read about 20 odd pages right. and then at the end of the train ride he's still, still about it. must be yeah. the substance abuse it's not that difficult <laughs> a book to read actually no so, um, so you see that you see the you see on the, one of the newspapers it talks about gaming, oh, gangland right. gaming crimes. So this is the hint because Hodges chose this location partly because of a recent murder um, uh, at the La Dolce Vita nightclub. What in Newcastle? In Newcastle, uh, yeah, I yeah. See. And so this was a nightclub where this guy called Angus Sibbett was killed <laughs> and it was known as the one-armed bandit murder because Sibbett was connected to a slot machine racket. Oh, okay. So the La Dolce Vita was visited by the Cray brothers 
and various kind of c celebrities from the South. Right. Um, Joan and Jackie Collins uh. used to go there. In fact, there's a funny story about the Cray brothers <laughs> when they tried to muscle in on Newcastle. It's a legend. Really? That they wanted to take over Newcastle. So they went it. there and they stayed in a hotel near the station and they left their shoes out in the corridor to be cleaned. Right. And in the morning they found them full of water. <laughs> and the message right. was from the cops, you don't come here. Wow. Stay down south. Wow. And and some of this is kind of this idea of the north as the mysterious yeah. gangster place that's even harder than the south. There's a flashback scene early on in the film where Jack is um, watching him and his gangland boss are watching a porno film. Oh yeah. And Jack is aloof from this because he's yeah. not interested in this kind of trivia. But the yeah. others are all laughing about it. This yeah. kind of thing. And then the boss says, "Why are you going up there, Jack? They're killers up there, like you." <laughs> and he goes, "They're tough nuts up north, Jack." <laughs> so right there you've got this you've look, got it the north is well, it, different and you've also got that whole police connection you know if they put fill their shoes with water the the police are ambiguous in a lot of northern noir to say the least they are and in in get carter they're pretty much absent yeah they are aren't they just even as the bodies pile up all over yes. the place there's yeah. a strange absence of police <laughs> the only time they appear is the, at the end yeah when carter um arranges for cyril kinnear yes. the porno gambling Gam boss yes. to, be to be arrested with all his um may interesting enough the house where cyril uh -huh. kinnear so cyril kinnear is the kind of head of this sleazy boss who yeah. who have killed jack's brother yeah and he's involved in paedophile porn Gambling, God knows what it's else. Brutal. He is. He's played by John Osborne, the playwright John Osborne. Oh, really? Yeah, he is. And I also the house that. where you, where Jack visits him and where the arrests take place is yeah. the same house where the guy in the La Dolce Vita murders. One of them was lived there and used to have these sort of orgy type parties there. Oh my God! So you've got this crossover between real fiction life. and real life all the time. Which is yeah. Very Another dark. key. Um, aspect yeah. of northern of, of noir in general so yes yeah yeah but but the, the interesting thing about the film which makes it stand out from it's you've got the story the revenge story yeah. which could be an american gangster film yeah. or it could be a western yeah but you've also got this unique setting where you see the 30s newcastle you know you see kind of um lines of clothes going across the tiny narrow streets and those sloping terrace sloping terraces and cobbles and and all of that it's very dark very um yeah 30s industrial you have a working docks yes yeah yeah so you have shipyards still you have going. all this kind of thing that was still going in the you have um marching parades so there's a sense of a mm. place that has community yeah, you yeah. see these marching parades marching yeah. bands you see a lot of people involved in various tawdry pleasures yeah. in pubs nightclubs yeah. and so on um you have these kind of almost like uh, top of the pops type scenes yes. of, of young women yeah, yeah, dancing um, yeah. dancing in the way that they did in the late 60s and early 70s yeah and you have from um, a lot of faces that look kind of quite hogarthian you know there's a they fight do, do you they? remember the scene the fight between two women in a nightclub oh, in a yes, pub? Yeah, yeah. that wasn't staged oh really no it was it actually happened oh, and Hodges goodness. just chose to film it uh, <laughs> and incorporate it into the film so he was he and his cinematographer were very conscious of what they were doing, and that's why that film re remains as a kind of visual testament to a certain mm. period in the history of the northeast and the history of the north, the north in general. It's it's that thing of noir where the the, the place is a character. I mean that stands out in that because you don't hear a lot of northern voices. No, and, no. And I I when you first mentioned the film, I thought. Well, that's not about the North. It's it's Michael Caine. Yeah. Um, 
And yet you get this, the place itself and the dark underbelly of the place becomes a character all its own. You do, and the, the, play, the playwright Lee Hall, he said that oh, the yeah, locations really he said the locations are what makes the film distinctive. He said yeah. he said the film sits right on this cultural and historical fault line between the modernist sixties architecture and the old Victorian conurbation, which is right. clearly being torn apart. Yeah. You see signs of that. Yeah, you do. People who know um Newcastle well say that some of the chase scenes are not um, coherent. They no. say you'll see people running down one yeah, street yeah, and then emerge yeah. in another not connected to that yeah. street. But so, you, and then last but not least, you have the Black Beach, the Blackhall Beach, yeah, yeah, where Carter incredible. finally enacts his revengeance. Yes. And, um, you know, that was used for the setting of um, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. Oh, really? Now it's a heritage site. It's one of the, it's a, it's one of the greenest places, the greenest bits of coastline That's in the North bizarre, East. bizarre, isn't it? So, you know, but you see Get Carter and you see what it once looked like, the colliery tipping waste out, oh, yeah, dumping horrible. it straight in into the sea. sea. Yeah, that's right. And it's bleak. And it's like the end of the line. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, this is the world in which Carter mm. um, seeks vengeance. And the thing is, he's not kind of um, Raymond Chandler's classic protagonist. Chandler once said, he said, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, yeah. who is neither tarnished <laughs> nor afraid. Well, he is the hero. Carter. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honour. By instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. And a lot of the, the things that we're looking at, you, you do get characters like that, but Carter definitely isn't. No, he isn't. I mean, in the film, it's not quite as clear that he's a psychopath. No. It's more like he's completely ruthless. Yeah, um, he's, but the, he's but monomaniacal. He's monomaniacal, but he does have a kind of sense of morality, doesn't he? In yeah. his, I mean, the, yeah. the way he tries to look after his niece and says to her, yeah. you know, come with, me, come with us to live in South America. And the guy, what's the guy's name that he throws off the car park? Well, yes, that's the guy. Cliff Brumby. You're right. You know the actor who played Cliff Brumby had to ask his priest if it was okay to what be in the he? film? Wow. Yeah. Because he, he thought, was in Because he's a paedophile, essentially. He's, he's, oh, a, so he's enabling right. paedophilia. And so he said, would yeah. I be sinning if, I be, if I'm in the film? And, the <laughs> and what did the priest, the priest said, say? Well, I don't know what his words were, but the priest said something like, go ahead, it's just a film. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, in this scene, when um, Jack um, deals out Shall vengeance to Cliff Brumby, you see his ruthlessness and mm. also a very kind of primitive sense yeah, yeah. of right yeah. and wrong, which the audience can't help but identify with. We and maybe that says something about us. Should we hear it? Let's do it. Yeah. Jack! You shouldn't have shown the film to Frank. I have to. It was the only way I could get at them. Well, you shouldn't have. Your brother was going to the police. You should. You didn't have the guts to do it yourself, did you? They killed me. They killed my brother. He's how would you have liked it if that had been your daughter being poked in that film? <laughs> what would you have done then? Slaves <laughs> like your Sandra can get away with it, can't they? The darlings of this world can't, can they?
goodness me, he don't mess about, does he, Cox? He doesn't really. No chance of a fair trial there, is there, for Cliff? No, but th- there is there is something moral in him where he says, how would you like it if mm-hmm. it was your daughter? Yeah, it's always the Doreens yeah. that don't... Um, the ordinary There's no people. justice for them, is yeah. there? So I guess that's another noirish theme, actually, is that in a world without justice, mm. or where justice is not possible, mm. then you're going to get people like Jack Carter. Yeah. And as a viewer or a reader, you're going to kind of um, root for them. Well, he's the embodiment of the shadow, in a way. He's all the things that, that people push away, the desire for vengeance, all of those things. He's suddenly embodied. And, and there is a part of you just thinks... Oh, what, at least he's getting some kind of justice. Totally, and in, in, in regards to the shadow in the novel, it's strongly hinted at that Doreen is actually his kid, uh, that he had an affair. Oh my God. So in a way, his vengeance on behalf of his brother is also motivated by guilt. Right, yeah. And so, is, and his rage at all these people who have exploited her is yeah. also because she's his daughter. It's full she of might rage. be his daughter, you know. So um, this is really dark stuff, Isn't really, it? and it came out of. Um, it hit the. It came into the seventies. Yeah. Um, it. Got kind of ordinary yeah, reviews. It, it got kind of ordinary reviews in the UK. It did slightly better in the States. Oh, did it? But the thing is, it kind of grew and grew over yeah, the it's years. It's one of those cult type films. Totally. I mean, at various points, at least once, has been voted as one of the top um, 10 films by, say, Guardian really? Film readers, as readers wow. and so on. Um, that surprises me. I think it's a great description. In terms of the relation between this film and the North... Yes, OK. Um, Dennis Lehane, the crime writer Dennis Lehane, oh, is yeah. actually no stranger to Grimness. No. I mean, his, his novels are as tough as it gets. Right. He said, uh, in a tribute to the book, uh-huh. he said, Aristotle, when he defined tragedy, mandated that a tragic hero must fall from a great height... But Aristotle never imagined the kind of roadside motels James M. Cain could conjure up (laughs) or saw the smokestacks rise in the northern English industrial hell of Get Carter. Wow. That's a great tribute, isn't it? Isn't it? it? And that's what that journey describes that he takes at the beginning of the film. It is a descent. It is, and it was seen later by northern writers, some northern writers, Mm -hmm. as a seminal moment. I mean, Ted Lewis um, died. Ted Lewis was a mess. And maybe oh, nobody really? who reads Get Carter can be entirely surprised well, no. by that. He was an alcoholic and he died of alcoholism, oh, alcoholic dear. poisoning, at the age of 42 oh, in sad. 1982. He had a brief period in which he was kind of famous, right. more or less in Michael Caine's shadow. Right. And actually, while we're on this, we, we should say that one of the things that really makes that film work is Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, I mean, he's you have mesmerizing. This, he's mesmerizing. He's violent, cold. Yeah charismatic he's in almost every single scene and you have his kind of cockney accent ringing out through the world of newcastle of newcastle. the back streets of newcastle yeah, yeah it's his city yeah he comes back to this crap house yeah, he says. yeah yeah you know but he's lost any trace of what that was yeah oh, it's an interesting casting he said that um kane also like a lot of actors of those days who used to hang around soho nightclubs he knew he said he modeled his character on an elephant and castle hitman who he oh, knew right. He, said, he didn't right. say much more about it. He just said right. he knew him. He also said that he ran into the hitman oh, some years later who'd seen Get Carter, who um, said, I thought it was a load of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so well, you've got... you don't like to see yourself portrayed sometimes. Without Michael Caine, that film wouldn't have worked really. And you know the scene when, right. um, Michael, when Caine first sees um, Doreen in this porno yeah. film? Oh, that's horrible. Um, he cries. Yeah, yeah. A tear comes out. And, yes. and Mike Hodges later said, he said, I was so grateful to Michael for giving me that scene. Wow. 
He said without that scene, the whole film would have collapsed. And that's the only time oh, you really yeah. see this kind of, um, there's some kind of sense of tenderness in this kind of monstrous, yes. tailored enforcer. Yes. So anyway, you know, the combination of the landscapes, this character, mm. the violence, the atmosphere, the nihilistic atmosphere of the film. The nihilistic, yeah. You have people like David Peace. David yes. Peace, the author of the Red Riding Quartet. <laughs> and now, now we're really getting dark. You don't get much darker than David Peace, do you? <laughs> Red I Riding, mean, goodness me. If Get Carter is noir, then the Red Riding Quartet is hyper noir. Jet black. <laughs> Jet black, hyper noir. Hyper noir, yes. In 2003, Peace described Get Carter as the finest crime novel he'd ever read. And he said he remembered looking for a book that would combine the plots and style of American noir with the northern working class fiction of the post-war and the landscape. Right. And he said that he couldn't have written his own novels without Ted Lewis's without inspiration. And, well, you know, as we've said, Ted Peace, uh, sorry, David Peace, in his novels and also in the Red Riding trilogy, the cinematic version that was done for TV and cinema of his novels. I've not read the novels, but I've watched the TV. Is hyper-noir. Yes. Uh, it takes it to almost into a new level. Um, you have characters with almost no redeeming features whatsoever. No, no. The, the spark of goodness that they have is always likely to be um, crushed uh, yeah. by this terrifying apparatus of corruption yes. revolving around Wakefield. Yeah, Wakefield. <laughs> I mean, you didn't think about Wakefield like that once, did you? No. Let's drink to us. The bloody lot of us. The bloody, the bloody lot, lot of us. We'll keep this brief. Johnny has acquired offices for us in the centre of Manchester. It's got the printing and distribution end sewn up nicely. Got a few Vice connections too. It's coming together. Control Vice. Off the streets. Out of the shop windows and into our pockets. The whole of the north of England. The girls. The shops. The mags. The whole bloody lot. Got an opportunity here. An opportunity to invest the money from our little uh, venture and turn it into something even bigger. Something great. You all know the construction magnet, John Dawson. John, please join us. Gentlemen, Mr. Dawson has his own dreams, don't you, John? I do, Bill. I'm offering you a business opportunity, gentlemen. With your help, I'm going to build a legendary shopping complex. And I'm not talking about some fucking rabbit hooks like Merrion Centre. <laughs> I'm talking about the biggest of its kind in Europe. A place where you can buy everything you need. Where you can go and see a film and go bowling. Where you can have breakfast, lunch or tea, all under one roof. I'm talking about an investment of £100 million. There's land close by the unslitten beast next year, the M1. The ideal. We're going to make this happen, gents. And we're going to make some bloody money too. Some fucking real bloody money. To us all. And to the north. The north? To the north. To the north. Where we do what we want. <laughs> to the north, where we do what we want. <laughs> That's a dark picture of the North. It's not everybody's image of Wakefield, is it? No, <laughs> no it's not. No. And it's interesting because when um, the uh, cinematic TV version of Red Riding Quartet came out yeah. as the Red Riding trilogy, a policeman 
former policeman, West Yorkshire policeman, wrote to the newspapers saying that he was outraged by this oh, depiction imagine. of the police force. He said, our policemen <clears throat> would never have sat at a desk with their feet on the table. <laughs> what? Given what, what the other stuff that goes on in Peace's novels, you could it's pretty the least of what they could yeah. be doing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but your feet on the tables are the least one they need to worry about. And he said also that um, the uh, depiction of, of the West Yorkshire Police as a corrupt institution is totally false, and his colleagues are outraged by it. Um, well, but but he didn't write this without evidence, surely. Well, that's the thing, really. I mean, think about David Peace's writing. He's got this very individual artistic vision of the yeah. North, which is you have to put the word hyper to it because it can't be described as. It goes beyond realism to yes. create this kind of Dante-esque world that is kind of even more noirish than even the yeah. something like Get Carter could imagine. But yeah, it's just taken up another notch, isn't it? It is, but you know, it bleeds into reality, and reality bleeds into the fiction. Well, that's you know, that's like the thing that we're looking at. I the think. introduction to the 1983 novel, the one which leads into the miners' strike. It just right. goes July 1969. All across the UK, they're staring at the sun, waiting for the moon. Anne Jones, Biafra, The Rivers of Blood, Brian Jones, Free Wales, The Dock Strikes, Marianne Faithful and Harvey Smith, Ulster. Harvey but here's Smith. the news today, oh boy. Memo from Morris, Jeanette Garland, 8, Missing, Castleford. God, it's like a poem. It's almost like a poem, isn't it? Mm. It's terse. Um, it hints at something really ni- nightmarish like what we saw in that clip, which is basically Yorkshire police yeah. with businessmen, one of whom looks to be a serial killer, yeah. planning to build Meadow Hall. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and um, the image she gives, that this is, they're totally, almost all-powerful, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And the yeah. idea that in the North they run it. This invincible corruption. Somebody, people have asked, I remember coming across an interview with David Peace, and someone said, you could, they can't really be like this, can they? The, um, the West Yorkshire police are not as bad as this, you know torture chambers in the police station and stuff, you would hope not. However, um, Peace referred them to some cases in which the police did behave in quite similar ways to the ones right. he described. I mean, not kind of medieval-level torture, but there was cases like the case of Stephen Kisco. No, I remember that. You do? Yeah. He was convicted of the murder of an 11-year-old Rochdale girl called Lucy Suzanne Molseed in 1975. Molseed. Leslie Molseed. So he was described as grossly immature, suffered from extra Y chromosome, um, learning difficulties and so on. He was questioned without anyone else present. Oh, right. He confessed, just as one of the characters does in the um, yeah. Red Riding yeah. Quartet. Um, he later, he was alleged to have been assaulted by one of the police, who was de- later demoted for incompetence in the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. There we go. Kisco died in 1993, one year after he got out of jail. Goodness me. His mother had campaigned throughout her life yeah. all those years uh, that's what to I get remember. him out. He, he was released, it was found to be a miscarriage of justice, and she, he died, and she died a year later. Tragic. Utterly tragic tale. And that's the kind of background that um, Peace is reading into. And, and holding a mirror up. So if the police are saying, well, it's not like that, he's saying, well, it is like that. It might not be always like that. But if you don't acknowledge any of it, you're relegating it all into this shadow world. I definitely, yeah, absolutely. In Peace's in peace writings, you get this picture of a world in which, pretty much like Get Carter, yeah. in which it's a world without justice, yeah. or where justice is an impossible outcome. Yeah. Because, um, and so, yes, yeah. you can say that he exaggerated this or exaggerated that. However, you know, the Stephen Kisco is not the only case. There are other cases. And yeah. this, is the, this is why what noir always does and what yeah. northern noir does 
That's why you get um, other crime writers, you know, who, who in the noirish tradition in the north, you have David Mark and Nick Quantrill in yeah. Hull, and in Sheffield. Yeah, Michael Wood. Mm -hmm. Michael Wood, he, he's quite recent. All his novels are set around Sheffield. In fact, there's an abduction of someone from my co-op, which every time I go in there, it makes me feel a bit cold. But it is that underlying darkness that they're bringing out in the north. Yeah, I mean, there's Russ Thomas from Sheffield exploring yes, yeah, similar yeah, territory yeah. as well. Uh, Liz Mystery, the queen of Northern Noir, as she's known, um, from who writes about Bradford. And, um, you know, these aren't books for people in search of a quiet life, are they? <laughs> no, 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 they're not. They might be an easy read, but they're, they're challenging. The bodies pile up. They do. There's darkness and evil all around. Yes. Um, there's always something worse just around the corner. Yeah, and, and we were taken with a couple of writers, uh, A.A. Dand, um, Amit Dand, who writes about Bradford, mm -hmm. uh, an Asian writer, um, introduces us to a world in Bradford that I think most a lot of people wouldn't necessarily immediately know. No. And then Leslie McAvoy, mm -hmm. who, who also, she calls it Fordley, but it's actually Bradford. Yeah, I mean, she's she signed a three-book deal with uh, Zachary Publishing uh, a year or so ago, I think. Right. And all her books are set in, in Yorkshire. Yeah, so they're, they're Yorkshire crime writers. Yeah. And luckily, they both agreed to talk to us. Should we see what they time. said? Yes, let's. Great. So thanks for agreeing to be on the Grim Up North podcast. And um, yeah, Matt's got a question for you straight yeah, away. Yeah, I guess, I guess my first question is, how do you both sleep at night? <laughs> Given I'll the content you of that your novels. Um, I don't sleep a lot, to be honest, because I tend to write at night. So, oh, yeah. um, so I, I, I have this... Um, I have this work environment where I need to, I start work about nine o'clock at night and then I'll work till sort of 12, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, and if I'm in the zone and the story's talking to me, then I, I have been known to go sort of all the way through the night. So the night for me is when storytelling comes alive because social media is quiet. The kids are asleep. It needs to be dark outside. It's like days like today where it's bright and it's nice sunshine and it all feels quite, 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 quite lovely and airy. I don't like that. I need I need it to be dark and and a bit and a bit terrifying. Um, and I live in the forest, so it can be quite terrifying at night time. So uh, yeah, I don't sleep much. Right, <laughs> right. How about you, Leslie? Um, I do sleep. I'm not. I can't work at night like I'm. I I write during the day. Um, but because I'm a behavioural analyst and a psychotherapist, and I, and I'm a profiler, I did quite a lot of work. I've done work in prisons and drug rehabs and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what inspires yeah. my writing. Um, so I, I do sleep, but occasionally I'm very aware of um, the ghouls under the bed, you know? So if, if sometimes if I'm really in a story, it can keep me awake because like Amit said, if the story's talking to you, my characters come and wake me up in the night. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and start having a dialogue and I have to get up then early and write it down. I don't think I'd want to be woken up in the night by some of your sure, characters, no, I would to be honest. <laughs> Listen, there's far, there's far more of them. I realised that there were far more psychopaths in business than there are in prison. I saw, I saw you said that and I think you're right. And I spent 30 years in the court because people think you work with the police all the time and that's not true. It's not like it is on the TV where 
every police force seems to have a forensic psychologist on the payroll. They, they don't. So you have to earn a living doing a day job. And um, I spent 30 odd years in business and there's far more psychopaths yeah. stalking the corridors of commerce than there are in prison. So well, it's not surprised at all to hear that. We, mm. we, we realise that both of you had done other jobs before you turned to writing. What? Well, I mean, it still does. And I'm in yeah. awe of the fact that he can actually oh, write and do a day job. I, I don't know how he, he does that. What, what yeah. made you turn to writing, this kind of writing? Um, I mean, I still do a day job because I find I did take um, a year off to write full time and I got quite depressed because um, right. I, I like the fact that I can go to work and, and socialise and mix with people and become a pharmacist, which is my day job. And it's it's you know interacting with patients and people and that that just detaches me from the darkness of the world that I write about. Yeah, I think it's quite important to have something else to do, which which gets you away from the computer. Because you know the thing with a laptop is it doesn't answer you back. Um, you know, the word the word document is just your imagination being typed out onto screen, and sometimes that can get quite isolating. Um, and as much as I'd love to say that my children give me balance in life, they don't. They stress me the hell out. Um, yeah, I've got a seven-year-old, six and seven-year-old, so I don't get any balance from them. Um, so yeah, I, I I became a pharmacist because it was kind of the thing to do when I was growing up. I I wasn't allowed to to study English literature because I wasn't very good at English when I was growing up. Um, and and I'm, I'm famed within my writing group for being the worst speller in the world. I mean, I am atrocious at spelling. But I, I, I grew up reading stories and I grew up going to Bradford Central Library, which I'm sure Leslie used to visit when she was there. Um, and we used, to, we used to take out five or six books every week. And it's the time before social media, so there wasn't really much to do. We had mm. four channels on TV and we had very little else to do. So books was a really good way to escape into an unknown world. And... I just read a lot of books and a lot of adult books that I shouldn't have been reading because <laughs> my parents, they just thought I was going to be a genius because I was reading these huge books. But I was reading Stephen King and Thomas Harris. Right. And my mind was taken to some of these really dark, terrifying places and it, it just made me feel alive. So I think the passion for reading is what got me into writing. And once I qualified as a pharmacist, and it's nice because the day job pays your bills because, you know, writing doesn't really pay your bills. Mm. It's, it's a nice hobby. But yeah. it could, I, I imagine it would get incredibly stressful if I had nothing else to do and I was just writing books because I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. So I, I think it's a win-win scenario where you, the, the day job meets your requirements of life, but the writing is what is, is what you're passionate about and, and, okay. and what gets your creativity going. So that, that's, that's, that's the way I got into it. You're both, kind of, you're both writers who've lived and worked in the North. Do you see yourselves as uh, Northern writers, um, as distinct from anywhere else Leslie, um, you, you write for example there's a scene you in line in, in the murder mile when you talk about yorkshire and not london that's critical you say about the killer at murder mile you say yorkshire holds real significance for him does it have real significance for you yes absolutely i think i'm very very proud of being from yorkshire and and when i came over to cheshire i got even more proud of being yorkshire and it, mm -hmm. they bring out the, the Yorkshire's in me even more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you, you don't always appreciate a place until you miss it. Yeah. And and you and you leave. And I'm only 50 miles across the Pennines. You know, it only takes me an hour door to door to get back to where I, I lived before because my family, my friends are still there. 
Um, but yes, I'm, I'm very much a Yorkshire writer. I've set my, well, The Murder Mile was never meant to be a series. I never set out to write a series. I wrote about Amit, but um, I was, I've, I've written ever since I was a child. And yes, I used to go to Bradford Central Library. And I also used to, but my nearest library was uh, Cross Lane Library, which is gone now. I, I, I started writing as a, really as a child. I used to sellotape pages together and make little books and give yeah. them to my parents. I was very you know, precocious. So I've always wanted to be a writer. It's only taken me 40 years to crack it because I, you know, I sent, I sent my first manuscript off in seriously in 1980. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, an, I'm not, I'm not a, an overnight success, but so it was never meant to be a series, but I always knew that I'd set it in Yorkshire because Yorkshire speaks to me and the North speaks to me. And I'm inspired by the city, but I'm also inspired by the countryside. I mean, Bradford, you're only yeah. ever 10 minutes away from countryside. And, and obviously we have a rich history, a dark history, I suppose, of crime and some of the most infamous criminals uh, from Bradford and around that area. So, and, and the prisons that I've worked in was sort of Manchester and mm -hmm. uh, Strangeways and, and Armley. And so it had to be there. Where else could I put it? But I made a conscious decision not to call it Bradford, mm -hmm. even though all the descriptions are. So little Germany is little Italy in my right. books. And um, Queensbury, where I lived, is Kingsbury. Right. So it's a bit cliche, but there you go. So it does speak to me and it is me and it's and it's the people and the characters and the the language and the history and yeah, it's got to be northern. That's kind of what in, in this episode we've been talking about northern noir, you know, and, and why um and this kind of way of seeing place in a particular way, you know, like um in, in your novels the landscape comes over quite strongly to me. You refer to the landscape of um Wuthering Heights, talk about the moors. The Milson grit and so on. And, and in Amit's books, you get a very much sense of the city mm. and the city being almost like an American crime city. Like you use the word Gotham, you compare it to Gotham <clears throat> various points. And then you say, um, it's, uh, I think it's um, Harry Verdi, your detective says um, that Bradford isn't like anywhere else. It's, I don't know, sort of like Gotham. You've got to stay in the shadows sometimes, become the city, understand its energy the good and the bad. Is that what you tried to do as a, as a writer? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's pretty, pretty apt description. I think that for me, Bradford's a really interesting place because it's, it's got the Gotham-esque feel of, you know, the wool empire and all the mills, which are now, which are now nothing more than ruins. Um, and, the, and the collapse of that industry just gives you a, a landscape within the city, which is really interesting slash terrifying slash, very cinematic and, and from that from the darkness and the shadows emerges the hero and I, I think that noir is, is absolutely the right way to describe the Harry Verdi series because he is my dark knight in Gotham. In, in your book in the Murder Mile Leslie your character lives in a farm um, quite an isolated farm where nobody in that profession, in my opinion, would, would live there, knowing that these kind of characters, um, <laughs> this kind of menace is all around her. So there's a kind of loneliness about that character. I felt scared for her all the time on that farm. Um, I think 
Amit's right. I am the opposite to him in some ways, in that he's the rural, I'm the rural crime and he's the city crime. Um, she's, she, it's not a working farm. So mm. Joe lives, and it was Queensbury for me, but it's Kingsbury for her. It's four miles outside of the city of Fordley, which Queensbury is outside of Bradford. Um, and it's a converted farmhouse with land. She want, But she says in, in the first book that she'd spent a long time working as the clinical psychologist in a psychiatric unit and that she needed yeah. physically as well as mentally to get away from that. So it, it was a 30-minute commute, which mm -hmm. was short enough not to be a long commute, but long enough to give her some distance. She quite likes being up yeah. on the top of a moor, away from everybody. However, yeah. that has a downside, and, yeah. and I'm glad you felt frightened for her because that's the kind of... And the other thing is, you know, I, I agree totally with what Amit's saying about that square mile of Bradford and getting the underbelly of it. But what fascinates me is that's where everybody thinks the worst crime and the, and the grisly things happen. And in my experience, terrible things can happen in beautiful places. Mm -hmm. And I think I like that juxtaposition of somewhere like Haworth, which you sit in Haworth and there are, you know, one of the scenes in book two in The Killing Song, she's chatting to her mentor who lives in Haworth. And I've given him a home there because I love Haworth and I had a holiday cottage there for a long time. And, it, and, and literarily, it's, got, it's a touchstone for me because of the Brontes and all yeah. the rest of it. And you sit in the cottage and outside people are pushing prams and the tourists are coming and the sun is shining and it looks picturesque. But there's an underbelly to that. There's an underbelly to the countryside. There's an underbelly. You know, people can do Absolutely. terrible things in rural places. In, in the first book, you say you have the, the, the Jack character say it's a fine line you walk on the other side of that abyss, isn't it? It seems to me that's what noir writing does: is it it traverses that abyss, um, and and you you know you you use the theme of the Ripper <clears throat> and the Yorkshire Ripper's shadow in all the things that we've been looking at, like the Red Riding series. His shadow casts a, a, a terrible uh, pall over Yorkshire. Um, it yeah, it does. And, and the minute you say you're from Bradford, yeah, a lot of people, only at the weekend I was doing a book signing in Harrogate and the receptionist, uh, I wrote, uh, she asked where I was from and I said Bradford, even though I live in Cheshire now, I'm from Bradford. And she said, oh, Yorkshire Ripper, straight yeah. away. You know, it was drilled into you because it, it, it wasn't a short spree of crimes. Oh, you know, it went yeah. on for five years. And, yeah. So it was drilled into you. You know, you don't go out on your own. You always go out in a group. You tell people where you're going. My mother worked at the police at the time. She was um, a civilian matron who worked at West Yorkshire Police. So she was really paranoid about it. I worked at the bank then when I had a proper job. And we were looking for the five pound note that was found in the purse of one of the victims mm -hmm. uh, from the payroll. I remember that. So all, all the banks had been given uh, lists of bank numbers and yeah. we were checking our payroll. And because I was a junior, that was one of the dirty jobs I was given. Yeah. So he was a massive, he, he, he sort of encroached in every area of my life, social life, work, my mother's work. 
And the night that they arrested him, she'd been on night duty. Yeah, and she'd been on night duty, and she came home in the morning and said, I think they've got him. And the first thing everybody said is, did he have a Geordie accent? And she said no. But So, yeah, he's writ large. So when I created a reincarnation of Jack the Ripper in Yorkshire, in Fordley, which was Bradford, of course, you can't not mention the the juxtaposition of that. And and do you think, uh, same with Emmett, you're presenting that abyss in some way, that, that dark side. W- why are you presenting that? What, what, what does that do, do you think? We do want to be in the places where crime feels more realistic. Um, so, you know, with Leslie setting hers in, in the moors and, and sort of that ripper-esque quality about it, it's equally as terrifying as me setting in the city centre. But it's just we are both setting our setting up our locations to complement the type of books that we are writing. But also, I think it, I think readers also find it exciting when, you know, a lot of people who live in Bradford and know the real locations I'm writing about on a, on a walk down Kirkgate Market um, or Foster Square or Bradford Interchange. Mm. And all of a sudden they're reading about, you know, a serial killer walking through Bradford Interchange. It makes it more personal for them because they've done that walk and they know John Street Market and Kirkgate Market. Yeah. So they're, they're immediately... I'm immediately giving them a personal connection to the places I'm writing about, and that makes it more personal. It makes it more interesting for them. Uh, and I enjoy it because I, I literally close my eyes and I can imagine walking around all of the streets of Bradford because I still live here. Yeah. And I know the city like the back of my hand. I talk about things that perhaps nobody else talks about, but that's because, you know, brown and brown racism is, is a significant thing that happens in our community. Uh, and I think that everybody's aware of, far-right elements of the world and white on brown racism, but nobody ever talks about the, the inter-community tensions that exist, which go all the way back to the partition of India. And all my books can be, you know, the seed of all of my books starts in the partition of India, believe it or not, because it's that moment in history which, which basically set a dividing line between communities. And when, when you're in a city like Bradford, which has got, you know, over 25% of the city is, is, has an ethnic population, Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's 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 almost impossible not to talk about these things because again it would be a disservice to the world that I'm writing about. I don't I'm not writing about real life. I do want Harry Birdie to slap the bad guy. I do want the bad guys to get the hell kicked out of them. I do yeah. want street justice because I can pick up a newspaper and see real time um, drama if I want to. But I want the reader. I think there are a lot of us that when we read about crimes in the newspapers, whether it's the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, or something like that is I think a lot of us think god I'd love 10 minutes in a room alone with that guy you know yeah. and you, you have this vengeance and you have this anger and I think it, it it does connect a lot of readers because all of us have surely thought about if someone was to harm my family you yeah. know what would I do and that rage that you have when you think about your wife your children when you put that into the book and Harry Verdi is alone with a murderer or a rapist or whoever and he does give them a smack in the face or he does dangle them out of a window and and, and, and really terrify them mm. I, I, for me i imagine that the readers are cheering because we'd all love to do that um yeah. but we can't because of laws and regulations so again it's it's taking you outside of your real-time world and into a fictional place and i like i like i imagine when, I, when i'm writing harry Verdi books it's very much the sin city feel 
Yeah. So it's Sin City meets, you know, Seven meets Gotham. It's that sort of world I'm in. Because I'm, I'm really fascinated and I'm obsessed with darkness. I, I don't I don't like sunshine. I, I like it to be dark. <laughs> it all sounds a bit um, vampiric. For me, a really dark, frightening bad guy is is, is almost more important than, than having a, um, a protagonist. Because we've all read about heroes and we kind yeah. of know... We kind of know what we want our hero to do but when you have your bad guy and you take them next level that's really fascinating i wanted to create a protagonist who was interested in the things i was interested in but i couldn't find anything to read so i wrote the books that i i would have wanted yeah. to read um and i think um the the void that you talk about looking across the abyss yeah while i'm in, explores the underbelly of of a city of the city my abyss is the abyss of the mind mm -hmm. and that quote that you took from book one was actually that haunts my character it haunts joe mccready because this psychopath this arch criminal that she's says to her the reason you you're good at what you do is because you think like we do Mm -hmm. yeah. And actually, it wouldn't take an awful lot for you to be operating on the dark side. And mm -hmm. much as she hates that, she kind of knows that's true. Yeah. And and it is quite a fine line. But I like to explore in the books the, the underbelly of the psyche, where I'm it's looking at the underbelly of a city. I'm looking at the underbelly of a psyche, and that is why it doesn't matter that it's in the rural place, because... Mm -hmm. There are minds in every location. The location can be beautiful and the, the mind can be dark. We've, um, we've talked a lot in this episode about um, the film Get Carter. Um, yes. Because that is the title of the podcast, actually. We talked about Get Carter as being a kind of um, sort of a threshold point um, in the way the, in the whole history of Northern Noir. It almost like it didn't exist before. Um, and then afterwards it did. And writers like David Peace and so on have said that they couldn't have written what they wrote had it not been for Get Carter. Did you see, has the film had any influence on you, on the two of you? Have you seen it? How did you respond to it? I'm it. And the, no and the novel too, for that matter. No, it didn't influence, it didn't influence me. But it wasn't one of those films you took out then when you were, when you no, were. No, the it. movies that I watch sort of frequently, and I've probably watched these movies 20 or 30 times, if not more, are the ones that I mentioned, which is Silence of the Lambs, just for the ability to have a bad guy who steals a show. Training day to have a, a cop who just conflicts you all the way through the movie. And you never know if he's good or bad until the end of it. Seven for the, for the pace and the plotting. You know, I'm still amazed that the movie Seven has seven murders and an ending which knocks you off your chair. You know, yeah. it's remarkable. It to, to do that in 90 minutes, to do that in 90 minutes is extraordinary. How about you, Leslie? Is Get Thanks. Carter featured on your um, cultural radar? Has, get, has that film more than Yeah, that? I've seen Get Carter a lot. I haven't read the book, but I'd seen the movie um, and it, it did have an impact on me. I think I came at it simplistically because I really liked Michael Caine as an actor. Yeah. And I, I, I don't actually think he's made many bad movies if you ignore the Jaws. And um, I watched all of his movies and I think Get Carter was, it, 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 it explores this thing that I'm interested in, which is the, the good and the evil. What lines would you cross? How far would you go? Can anybody kill? You know, he's doing this because of his 
brother and his his um his niece and and, and and all of that. And so you're kind of rooting for him a bit, but he's not that wholesome himself. And some of the things he does <laughs> and the dark sides that he goes to. And the other thing was as well to see English characters, northern characters in those days. I mean, what was the what year was Get Cartridge? was in the 71. 71. So to see them carrying guns, using guns in, in the in British streets to come out of a house with a shotgun. Yeah. And, and come past the middens. You know, that was the juxtaposition between the kind of Yorkshire and the northern cobbled streets and middens and terraced houses that I knew with violence and gangsters that yeah, we, weren't used, yeah. we weren't used to seeing that. You saw, you saw gangsters wielding guns in American streets, not in the cobbled middens. And so it was that juxtaposition, that kind of shock, mm. um, and the ending. Because again, you know, it was one of the the start of this where the good guy doesn't always win and justice isn't always served in the end. And yeah. you live by the sword, you die by the sword, all that kind of thing. So that is interesting, isn't it? Two writers yeah. with from the same place, yeah. but with very different kind of focuses and, really and, and preoccupations and writing styles. It was great to have them together. It was. Um, yeah, the, the difference between... She she talked about the two abysses, mm -hmm. the abyss in the the, the inner city yeah. that he uh, Amit described so powerfully, and then the abyss, what she called the abyss of the psyche or mm -hmm. the abyss of the mind. It's kind of like an interior landscape, psychological yeah. landscape that she's exploring. Whereas there's something more kind of not sort sort of sociological in, yeah. in well, a sense yeah. in his books because the darkness is kind of around, it's present in the city. Well, and that whole idea of Gotham. Mm -hmm. And the the Dark Avenger, yeah, that seems to be the trope that he's deeply pulling on, um, and I, I found it fascinating that he only writes at night, um, the, the, and and that you know on one level could sound quite um, quite trite, but I, I I really do think that you are pulling on the unconscious when you write this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean his. It's quite vampiric in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like you <laughs> the said. The idea too. of being awake at night writing into the early and, hours. And they both talked about something, and I don't know whether you feel like this as an author as well, that sometimes the book starts talking to you, the characters start talking. She said the characters wake her up, and, and you've just got to, you've got to write it. Absolutely. No, I mean, when you're really into kind of writing fiction, when you write deep in it, the characters come to life yeah. and they can talk to you and you can talk to them. It's just that when you're writing this kind of thing, the characters, know. The characters you necessarily want I mean, in your daily life. That's why we yeah. asked them whether they sleep at night. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, the, you know, the um, his kind of portrayal of Bradford, he refers to Gotham. Yeah. Um, I like it. It's that he takes these American ideas mm. to attach to a northern city because yeah. that's kind of the classic. You can see the line of descent from kind of American noir right through to the north. Yeah. But they also reminded me of Dashiell Hamlet's um, Poisonville um, oh, yeah. in, one of it, in the sense that Bradford is a city constantly on the brink of explosion. Yes, that, I mean, that comes across um, all the time. For different reasons, obviously, yes. is the one in that, in that early book. But yeah. So, you know, the idea that his characters must negotiate this, this urban darkness... Whereas with Leslie's, the darkness could be inside anybody in any place. It's not. It's it's true. It's northern in the sense of landscape. Yes. The landscapes that she describes and the places that she imagines and the references to the history, the Yorkshire Ripper, West Yorkshire yeah, Police. Yeah. But really, there's a kind of interior exploration of the monster or potential exactly. monster. I thought I was struck by what she said about um, 
her forensic profiler protagonist, Joe McCready, yeah. that she could be capable yeah. of some of the things that she is investigating. It's that whole thing she talks about, the sort of Nietzsche idea of uh, looking <clears throat> into the abyss. Yeah. And it stares back at you. Yeah. Jung certainly... If you face the collective shadow, yeah, you're in trouble if you if you don't uh, have some kind of scaffolding. Yeah, but isn't it interesting that isn't that what's interesting about this whole subject though that you basically got these writers, filmmakers, and so on exploring these kind of universal themes yeah. in a background of decayed steel towns and mill towns and kind of craggy deserted yeah. moorland landscapes of the north. And that's the question, isn't it? Is this is there something specifically northern? about this does the north give birth to this does what what's happened I, I mean i think that idea of this is the north we do what we want yeah that there is a an undertone of independence from the south and having been badly treated we've been victims yeah and perhaps and the, and the need you know he amit talked about the vengeance trope Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there is a dark part of our shadow that wants revenge for everything that's happened to us, and these books give voice to some of that, unearth some of that. Absolutely, I think in a world of injustice, in in a world where there will always be injustice yeah. in some form, there will always be the desire for justice, and it will manifest itself in different kinds yeah. of ways. And perhaps this kind of writing is one way of doing that, in the sense that murderers get caught, yes, get exactly. killed, um, exactly. the evil is stopped. Yeah. Um, we'd all like to believe that. But, yeah. they, but there's another aspect of this Northern Noir thing that we haven't really discussed yet, which is the ordinariness of it. Because yeah. Northern Noir is not only about police. It can be. <laughs> it generally is. But, you know, there's, um, in the kind of Postman Always Rings Twice kind of scenario, yeah. you have ordinary people who cross a line yeah. and find themselves doing something wow. monstrous. Yeah. You know, it might be out of jealousy, yeah. greed, yeah. Uh, lust, and so on. And, you know, one of the most interesting kind of television versions of Northern Noir for me nowadays is um, Sally Wainwright's Happy Valley. Oh, God, I love Happy Valley. It's brilliant, isn't I it? I know, and <laughs> you watch it and you think, wow, this is so dark. But there's the just incredible humour, gallows humour, of, of, of her and her sister and the, 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 the police that are involved. But it is wonderfully ordinary. It is, but, and it's kind of got She's a sort a great of, writer. It's got a kind of Fargo-esque dimension yes, to it, it hasn't it yeah. in that you've got these kind of um northern william macy type characters mm, that, mm. what you know these what you for want of a better word you could call losers who try and do some little thing to make yeah. their lives go better yeah. instead it makes it catastrophically worse yeah. and yeah. so yeah you're absolutely right that dark humor running which through is it. so powerfully northern and you've got that uh, is Hall- is it set in Halifax? Set in the Calder Valley, the Calder so Valley, um, Hebden Bridge, and yeah, Halifax. all of that, yeah, all of that. And that's a character. But I actually think that the character of Northern people plays a massive role in Happy Valley. It does in all the family relationships because I mean it focuses around Sergeant Catherine Cowood, that's brilliantly right. played by Sarah Lancashire. She's amazing, amazing in it. Like in this in this particular scene when she yeah, goes yeah, yeah. Um, to I a playground to stop this guy setting fire yeah. to himself. It just yeah. sums up that combination of dread and um, humour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's watch it. Absolutely. Let's, well, let's listen to it. You got a fire extinguisher. 
Fine. I'm putting out fires. I've got one in the car, but I may need something bigger. There's a fella around the corner reckoning to set fire to himself. Yes, thank you. We're on top of that. How much can I give you for these? Mm. Nice glasses. Well, he can send himself to paradise. That's his choice, but he's not taking my eyebrows with him. You think I give a toss about what you do? You just bloody scum, you like pigs, you like animals. Do we know his name? Liam Hughes, 23, unemployed, smackhead. What's upset about? His ex. His ex. She finished with him three days ago. Now she's sleeping with his best bud. Got a high ranking, highly trained specialist expert police negotiator on his way over from Wakefield. ETA? Basically, she went naked. Gold down the comedy department. Tell what and only, you wouldn't barbecue. You come in and call us up, we'll set yourself off, all right. What's happening? I don't know what you bought that for. Well, if you accidentally fireball yourself, you're, you're going to get bummed. And believe you me, right. it's not a good look. How's it all come to this then, lad? I've been humiliated. Humiliated? But I don't want to talk about it, all right. OK. You know, actions speak louder than words. OK. Can I just say this though, Liam? The light is making me nervous. You've had a lot to drink and you've got the shakes and you might press it without intending to and I'd like to put it down. Just leave me alone, you stupid bitch. You're upset, I understand that. The point I'm making is that with all these fumes and frankly, I don't know how you're staying conscious, you could go up any second whether you intend to or not. And once you go up, you won't just go up a bit, you'll go up a lot. And the other big thing to say is it hurts. Three seconds in, you'll be screaming at me to put you out. Seven seconds in, you'll be begging me to shoot you. I've got a negotiator on his way to you, but he's stuck in traffic. OK. He says the big thing to keep the subject engaged in conversation. Yeah, I think we've got that covered. I'm Catherine, by the way. I'm 47. I'm divorced. I live with my sister, who's a recovering heroin addict. I have two grown-up children, one dead, one who doesn't speak to me, and a grandson, so... Why? It's complicated. Let's talk about you. I've been humiliated and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> That's the North. That's, That's the, true. We don't want to talk about it, but we're really pissed off. But that scene is just brilliant, isn't oh, it, really? genius. It's, she's such a great writer. I mean, there's, it's the kind of... It's really funny and it doesn't... Um, it's a sucker punch in a way because when you w begin to watch it, especially if you know anything about her previous writing, you think, oh, maybe... This is some kind of comic yeah, yeah. thing about the North. Last Tango. But then these, yeah, like Last Tango. But that but, was dark as well. It is, but this is... This is really dark. Darker, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, because the her plots grab you by the throat, oh, don't absolutely. they? Absolutely, straight away. When you've got that introductory setting, a railway bridge, recognised yeah, Northern Yorkshire. Hills, West Yorkshire landscape. Then you've got this guy, social deprivation, 23, unemployed smackhead. Exactly. You've got the problem, you're an Irish character, the, you're the caught with the problem. The shutting down of industry has led to him. Yeah, that's right. And... But you've got Sarah Lancashire's character. She's yeah. kind of on the edge. Wounded. She's got damaged. She's damaged. And so you all got that in the first two minutes of yeah. the first yeah. episode. <laughs> and then, genius. boy, does it get dark, you know. I know. I mean, Leslie McAvoy was talking about psychopaths earlier. Yeah. This is one psychopath you don't forget when you've seen him no, you in Operation D. He's chilling. But, and you know, ordinary. And I totally, mean, he's, yeah, he's the absolutely. sort of bloke you'd meet in a pub. Yeah. I've, I've, working at the food bank, places like that, well, when I worked in a hostel, Sometimes someone would come to the door and you just knew this was a person not to mess with. You don't mess with this person. Yeah. They've got that edge about them. And they look perfectly affable, but you just think, oh, hang on. And in a certain situation, they yeah. can do things like the guy does yeah. in this yeah. series. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I can't avoid 
coming to the conclusion that this kind of writing, this kind of description, this very unhovis loaf, uh, this very unhovis loaf way of looking at the North begins with Get Carter. Yeah, I think you're probably right. You know that. I the, think you're right. The willingness to accept yeah. those sides of the North and recognise them and talk about them in particular places, whichever yeah. city you choose, goes right back to Roy Budd's baseline in that opening soundtrack and yeah. Michael Caine and in that, that train coat and that travelling up to Newcastle because they're the tough they're tough nuts up there tough Jack <laughs> that's right they're killers like you but it, it it's I mean I'm finding it uncomfortable because I think it presents to us in the north something of our shadow you know sometimes when I go to football matches I went to watch Wednesday Barnsley the undercurrent of violence sometimes mm-hmm. is really quite scary and I, and I think it presents us with something about ourselves that that perhaps we have to face up to and and find a way of 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 doing what Jung says to find the moral way through to 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 deal with what's happened to the north i guess you're right but i think you know don't you think this kind of noirish kind of writing is a step in those direction you know the it, work it gives you an outlet it's an outlet it's also a willingness to recognize these things the yeah. stories you see in newspapers that you can't explain, that don't have any explanation, the murders, the crimes, yeah. the Yorkshire Ripper yeah, things, yeah. the history, that, that streak of history. It's not all the North is no. by any means, but Jimmy it's Sowell. a streak, yeah. it's a part of the history and culture of what it is to be the North. But when I watch that with Sally Wainwright, mm-hmm. I want to say, yeah, that's the North, mm-hmm. that's the North I know. Mm-hmm. And, and she is like the perfect hero, heroine to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because she's damaged, but she's trying to do the right thing. Right. And she's bringing... It's like she's carrying people in her wake. Yeah, that's a kind of female Chandler-esque character, really. Walking the mean streets, but not being mean herself. Yeah. I guess we kind of need a bit of redemption after all this. Well, we do. She's a bit like an angel. And I think what we our next episode is going to be about angels of the North. What's that going to be about? Well, looking at... Is there something in the North in our... our, uh, history and in who we are that has that uh, ability to, to create goodness um, to to see the greatness of the world the beauty in religious of the world. terms aren't we well yeah in religious terms in spiritual terms <laughs> and, it, and it's an exploration is it, do we have any of that thanks very much so that's the end of this episode yep. I hope it should have come with a parental advisory I'm sure um but uh, again, it's uh, Grim Up North the podcast at gmail.com. And thanks for all your comments about the uh, about the last episode about Orgreave, which have been really happily they received have. by us, they and have. it's been well received. So we look forward to talking to you Until next, next time. Until next time. Thanks very much. Cheers, Matt. Cheers. <laughs>